The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. In 1996, on the first Sunday of Advent at St. John's Church in Salisbury, Connecticut, in the midst of all the cheer and warmth that comes with the holiday season, a preacher by the name of Fleming Rutledge walked up to the pulpit and started her sermon with these words. Every year, Advent begins in the dark. Every year, Advent begins in the dark. She goes on to say, Advent teaches us to delay Christmas in order to experience it truly when it finally comes. Advent is designed to show that the meaning of Christmas is diminished to the vanishing point if we are not willing to take a fearless inventory of the darkness. She says, don't get me wrong, I can't get enough wreaths, lights, presents, carols, and holly. She's no Scrooge. But inside the church, we refuse cheap comfort and sentimental good cheer. And so, Advent begins in the dark. I think she's right. Advent begins with the cry, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lowly exile here until the Son of God appear. Advent begins with a cry for rescue. From an acknowledgement that we are captives. So during Advent, despite the holiday cheer, we don't ignore the darkness of the world around us, but boldly stare into it. Or as Fleming would say, we do not ignore the darkness, but take a fearless inventory of it. A fearless inventory of it. Well, as you know, our series for this year, for Advent, is titled... Working in the waiting. And I don't think I need to spend time convincing you of the darkness in your own vocations. We all know too well that our work can feel tiresome, meaningless, fruitless, and yes, hopeless. But in this holiday season, instead of detaching from the stress and the problems and the pain of our work, we are choosing to stare directly into its darkness. We are doing so because we have the only light powerful enough to overcome such a darkness. The light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We, we stare because we have a story. And I'm not talking about the story of the American dream but rather the grand story of the Scriptures. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. How are we to understand all our work, not according to the story of the American dream or American individualism, but according to the Scripture story? Last week, Jonathan started us off in the series by talking about work in creation and work in the fall. And 
we saw that work is and isn't a four-letter word. I'll give some of you a moment on that one. Work is and isn't a four-letter word. Uh, that work was part of God's good creation. Work was given to humanity not as punishment, but gift. We saw that in the beauty and goodness of creation, work had a twofold purpose. Work was to be done in worship of God and lead to worship of God, and work was to be witness to the worker God, to his character, to his beauty. It was to witness in creation. The purpose of humanity's work, love of God and love of neighbor. The story continues. We looked at work in the fall. In the fall, sin has infected and affected everything. It's like a cancer that spreads and destroys everything that it touches, including human work. In the fall, work becomes what we all know to be true, tiresome, feels meaningless, fruitless, pointless, and it becomes what we all know to be true, becomes selfish. Selfish. But that's not the end of the story with our work. God has not left us to ourselves, but has come to us in the manger to redeem and to recreate that which has been broken. Yes, our working. And so for the next two weeks, we want to talk about how Christ redeems our work by turning us outside of ourselves onto him and onto the neighbor. Uh, Next week, Ed will be talking about how Christ redeems our work by turning us outside of ourselves and onto him in worship. But this week, I want to talk about how Christ redeems our work by turning us from ourselves to our neighbor. Christ redeems our work by turning us from ourselves to our neighbor. Uh, Today, I want us to... Meditate on the reality that in our various vocations, we are the masks of God, freed in Christ to bear witness to him through sacrificial service to the world. I should have a visual. Yes, thank you, tech team, a.k.a. Samuel Wall, one of our high schoolers. Looking out for all my visual learners this morning. Uh, yes, today I want to meditate on the reality that in our various vocations we are the masks of God, freed in Christ to bear witness to him through sacrificial service to the world. I want to spend our time just walking through this statement together. Walking through this statement together. Alright, so first, in our various vocations, in our various vocations, Last week, Jonathan encouraged us to have a biblical understanding of work. He called us to see all our working as vocation, as a calling. And we saw that all of us have a vocation, not just those that have an occupation. God has gifted and placed all of us in a specific moment to accomplish his purposes in creation, whether we are a student, stay-at-home mom, plumber, or retired. You have a vocation. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul writes, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him, to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Here, 
Paul is telling the readers that when they become Christians, it's unnecessary for them to change what they are doing in life, to change their station in life, to lead lives that are holy and pleasing to God. And in the context of the chapter, it's clear that Paul is talking about everyday work. He's talking about everyday work, and he uses the words assigned and called to refer to everyday tasks in society. Just as God calls people into faith and gifts them for building up the church, so God calls and equips believers with various abilities and talents to work for the good of society. To work for the good of society. Assigned. Called. Each of us. Uh, in, in the medieval church, there uh, existed a division between the spiritual work of the clergy and the daily work of the ordinary person. Well, a man by the name of Martin Luther, from his reading of Scripture, had a few thoughts on that. Luther said this, It is pure fiction that Pope, bishops, priests, and monks are called the spiritual estate, while princes, lords, artisans, and farmers are called the temporal state. I love this. This is indeed a piece of deceit and hypocrisy. Luther never minced words. This is indeed a piece of deceit and hypocrisy, yet no one need be intimidated by it. And for this reason, all Christians are truly of the spiritual estate. There is no difference among them except that of office. We are all priests by baptism. Shades, in Christ you are a priest called to point beyond yourself wherever he has placed you. And God places and calls everyone equally in their work. The pastor, plumber, stay-at-home mom. Assigned. Called. Um, Seeing your work as vocation means seeing that you have been called by someone and that your work is done for that person that called you. That's a very different narrative than the American dream, where work is seen as a means of self-fulfillment or self-actualization. This morning, if you see your work as calling, that means that God is already beginning to draw you outside of yourself to Him and to the world. If you think of your daily work as vocation or calling, that means that God has worked in you and drawn you outside of yourself to see that what you're doing throughout your days is about more than just yourself. Service of God and the world. So let's not quickly pass over that reality. While we may know that cognitively, God wants to speak a word afresh to us today. You are called. You are assigned. You are a priest. You are a priest. All right, moving on. In our various vocations, we are the masks of God. We are the masks of God. What do I mean by that? 
What do I mean by the masks of God? Well, I'm stealing this phrase from Luther again, I have to confess. Uh, When Luther read Psalm 147, uh, verses 12 and 13, which says, Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion. For he strengthens the bars of your gates. For he strengthens the bars of your gates. Luther reading this asked, The question, how does God strengthen the bars? How does God strengthen the bars? Or how does God provide for the security and safety of a city? His answer is through good order and wise rulers. Good order and wise rulers. This is a gift from God. When reading verse 14 that says he makes peace in your borders, Luther asks, how does God make peace in your borders? His answer is through good neighbors who act with honesty and integrity. Give us this day our daily bread. Well, Luther reading this writes, When you pray for daily bread, you are praying for everything that contributes to your having and enjoying your daily bread. You must open up and expand your thinking so that it reaches not only as far as the flour bin and baking oven, but also out over the broad fields and farmlands and the entire country that produces, processes, and conveys to us our daily bread and all kinds of nourishment. Do you see what he's doing? Do you see what he's doing? He's asking, how does God give security to a city? How does God do that? Through the daily service of good and just city officials, police officers, and politicians. How does God make peace in in the city? Through people who are good neighbors to one another. How How does God feed you? How does God provide daily nourishment for his people so they can continue his purposes in the world. How does he do that? Well, through the daily service of the farmer, the baker, the truck driver, and even the person who maintains the roads for the truck driver to drive on. In all of this, in all of this, Luther would say that through all these daily tasks, God is protecting and providing for the world. God doesn't have to use humanity to provide or protect his creation, but he chooses to. He chooses to. He involves humanity in the work. And so what else is this daily work that we do than the mask of God? The masks of God. What else is this daily work other than God working himself to give his gifts to his creation. Shades, as you reflect on this, does this not bring a measurable worth and meaning to your vocation, no matter what it is? Does it not give a measurable meaning and worth to your vocation, no matter what it is? I mean, as long as it's not immoral or illegal, right? As long as you're not working for the mafia this morning, we laugh at that, but have you seen The Godfather? Where was the mafia on Sunday? In church, right? Yeah. Right, nothing immoral or illegal. But this brings immeasurable worth and meaning. Because if you're anything like me, in your working, 
then you often think to yourself, what's the point? What's the point? I, I look around me, and this does not seem like it's making a difference to anybody. It does not look like this matters at all. Shades, here in faith this morning, that in your working, you are the instrument of God's providence, accomplishing his eternal purposes in creation, protecting, providing, and sustaining his good creation. All right, moving on. Our next phrase. In our various vocations, we are the masks of God, freed in Christ. Freed in Christ. A.J. read Galatians 5.13 where Paul says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For you are called to freedom, brothers. What's going on here? Well, in the context of Galatians, here Paul is saying that believers are free from the law in Christ. Meaning that the burden, the burden of attempting to be right with God on the basis of one's obedience no longer applies to believers. For they now enjoy the freedom of being redeemed from the curse of the law through faith in Christ. So the Galatians are freed from having to prove or earn their status as the holy people of God through works of the law. And so you, in Christ, are freed from needing to earn or establish your identity through works of the law. But also, and I want us to hear this this morning, in Christ you are freed from the burden of earning your identity through works of your work. Through works of your work, you are freed from the burden of earning your identity through your title, pay stub, or from approval from others. You are freed from seeing everyone in your life as a threat to your identity. You are freed from seeing everyone in your life as a threat to your identity and livelihood. You are freed from seeing everybody else in this room as competition. As competition. Nobody talks about pride more eloquently than C.S. Lewis. In C.S. Lewis, anything he talks about is eloquent. But he's good on pride. And he says this. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of competition is gone, then pride is gone. You no longer need to be a notch above everyone else in your achievements. You no longer need the lifestyle that communicates success to the world. You no, long, no, you no longer need to keep up with the Joneses or compete with the Joneses. And let's not act like it's just the wealthy and the affluent that struggle with that. We all have our Joneses. And we all want to keep up with them. 
in our own ways. No, we're freed from that. We're freed from that. For your identity and security in Christ has been freely gifted to you from the creator of the universe. In him you are a son, you are a daughter, adopted, love, and freed from the tiresome task of spending your entire life looking for meaning and identity in your vocation. Freed from looking for meaning and identity in your vocation. Thanks be to God. All right, this takes us to our last section for reflection. Our last section for reflection. In our various vocations, we are the masks of God, freed in Christ to bear witness to Him, freed in Christ to bear witness to Him. Which will take us to 1 Thessalonians, the passage that A.J. also read. What's going on in 1 Thessalonians? Well, Paul is overjoyed writing to the 1 Thessalonians because Timothy has returned to Paul with a report that despite much persecution of the church in Thessalonica, they've, they've remained faithful. They've remained faithful to the gospel. And so Paul's overjoyed. But he does have his concerns Uh, We see this in verses 9 through 12, the verses A.J. read in chapter 4, where Paul addresses his concern. What is his concern? It's their daily work. His concern for this church facing persecution is their daily work. Let's read it again together and see if you can hear it. Now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. And to aspire to live quietly. And to mind your own affairs. And to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. What's going on here? Where, well, Paul exhorts the Thessalonians in these verses to a couple things. He tells them to increase in their love. He tells them to aspire to live a quiet life, to work with their hands, to not be dependent upon anyone else. Now, because Paul does not explicitly say, it's, it's hard to know what exactly is going on. It's hard to know specifically what he's addressing in these verses. But looking at the context of the letters, it, it appears that there's disruptive behavior in the community coming from a misunderstanding of Christ's second coming. There's disruptive Behavior in the community coming from a misunderstanding of Christ's second coming. It it seems that after the Thessalonians' conversion, a group of them became so enamored 
with the possibility that Jesus could return at any moment that they left their jobs, they left their daily ordinary work, and they began publicly proclaiming apocalyptic doom. They were preaching a message of God's imminent wrath on society while also mooching off the society for their well-being because they weren't working. And Paul says, hey, this, this is not a good look. This is not a good look. Uh, and their actions, if you can imagine this, was actually increasing the persecution in the church. The daily lives of these people we're giving the gospel of Jesus Christ a bad rep. And Paul writes to them, and, and he wants them to know in the letter that while Christ's return is imminent, it could come at any moment, and while they are awaiting people, ultimately waiting for his rescue, they are to faithfully witness to Christ, not by abandoning their ordinary daily work, but by continuing in it. They are to witness to Christ, not by abandoning their ordinary daily work, but by continuing it. Now, I don't think that at SVCC we have the ongoing issue of people abandoning their jobs and standing on the side of the road with Turner Burn signs because they believe that that's the only effective way to witness to the gospel. I don't, I don't think that's going on. If it is, shoot me an email. Let me know. Uh, but nonetheless, this is a powerful word to us today because Paul reveals that faithfulness and the daily, ordinary task are an essential witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Faithfulness and daily, ordinary task are an essential witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ, whether we realize it or not. Ordinary, daily work. You know, I, I, I would imagine that for some of us, the fear is not that God would call us to Africa to abandon everything, but rather the fear is that he would call us to a life of continued faithfulness in our daily tasks. It's not the fear of the unknown, it's the fear of the ordinary. The fear of the mundane. An Anglican priest by the name of Tish Warren Harris uh, writes about her own wrestling with this fear. I love what she says. She says, I, I'm not sure anymore what God counts as radical. And I suspect for me, getting up and doing the dishes when I'm short on sleep and patience is far more costly and necessitates more of a revolution in my heart than some of the more outwardly risky ways I've lived in the past. And so this is what I need now, the courage to face an ordinary day. She goes on, I'm starting to learn that whether in Mongolia, a place that she served previously, or Tennessee, the kind of giving my life away that counts starts with how I get up on a gray Tuesday morning. The kind of giving my life away that the count starts with how I get up on a gray Tuesday morning. She closes by saying, maybe at the end of days, a hurried prayer for an enemy, a passing kindness to a neighbor, or a budget planning 
on a boring Thursday will be the revolution stories of God making all things new. Let me read that one more time. Maybe at the end of days, a hurried prayer for an enemy, a passing kindness to a neighbor, or a budget planning on a boring Thursday will be the revolution stories of God making all things new. I just want to edit one thing. Not maybe, Tish, definitely. Definitely. These will be the revolutionary stories of God bringing about his purposes in creation Now, don't get me wrong. I'm all for a call to radical discipleship in so much as it challenges our comfort and complacency and leads us to obedience of Jesus Christ. But maybe for those of us who find ourselves constantly following the newest Christian fad or blog or looking for the next big thing, need a word that calls us to embrace the seemingly mundaneness of a well-lived Christian life. And I think that because it is only then that you will truly see the significance of your daily actions and grasp your working as witness. And grasp your daily, ordinary, mundane work as eternal witness. As eternal witness. All right, coming to the end. Lastly, in our various vocations, we are the masks of God, freed in Christ to bear witness to him through sacrificial service to the world. Through sacrificial service to the world. There are no doubt many ways that we could talk about bearing witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ through our service to the world in the time that we have left. Uh, I could talk about doing our daily work with competence. Doing our daily work with competence. The writer and poet Dorothy Sayers uh, said this, The church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting to not be drunk and disorderly in his leisurely hours and to come to church on Sundays. What the church should be telling him is this, that the very first demand the religion makes on him is that he should make good tables. Now, I think she overstates her point, but I think she makes it nonetheless. Competent work is a gift to another person, whether you are a pilot, plumber, or a stay-at-home mom. Competent work is a gift. Competent work is a means of service to another person, right? We could talk about competency. We could talk about creating culture. Creating culture in our work. Andy Crouch in his book, Culture Making, says that Christians aren't supposed to just be avoiding culture. And on the other end, we're not just supposed to be mindlessly consuming culture, uh, but we're to be known as creators and cultivators of culture. Creators and cultivators of culture. Creators. People who dare to think and do something that has never been thought or done before. Something that makes the world more welcoming and thrilling and beautiful. Creators. I think it's a shame that so much Christian art over the past 20 years has been known as stealing something from the culture and tagging Jesus' name on it. 
right? Growing up, I had a shirt I would always wear to high school. It said, a breadcrumb and fish. I don't know if any of you are getting what's happening yet. There was a clothing store named Abercrombie and Fitch. So the fact that the shirt said a breadcrumb and fish, I thought I was awesome. Right? It's the kind of approach that's like, what's good out there? Okay, let's tag Jesus' name on it. It'll be cool. It's, it's rarely cool, right? Yeah, I'm not wearing that shirt anymore. Creators, but also cultivators. Uh, people who tend to nourish what is best in human culture. Who do the hard and painstaking work to preserve the best of what people have done before us. We could talk about witnessing to Christ by furthering social justice in the world, advocating for the forgotten and the neglected in all of our communities. Heck, we could talk about the positive witness that comes with just not being a jerk. <laughs> a witness that comes from treating others with dignity and respect, whether that's on social media or at a work party. Or in the home. But with the time I have left, I just want to talk about bearing witness specifically through sacrificial service. Bearing witness through sacrificial service. Can we go back to Galatians for a second? Paul reminded us in Galatians, now we in Christ have been given an identity, a purpose, and a secure future. We've been freed. But true freedom for Paul expresses itself not in fleshly actions, action of the old person in Adam, but rather in, in loving service to the world, in, in sacrificial loving service to the world. That is what we've been freed to do, right? For you were called to freedom. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. Through Christ, you've been freed from yourself to do what you were created for. Witness to the triune God through sacrificial service to the world. It is only this freedom and future in Christ that can lead to such a service. To lead to such a sacrificial service. Because such sacrificial service is scary. It's scary. But in Christ, we have been freed. And therefore, we have nothing to fear. You have nothing to fear in your working. Such freedom led Henry Nouwen, a Catholic priest, to sacrificial service by going from teaching at Harvard and Yale and Notre Dame to serving people with disabilities who knew nothing of his accomplishments. Such freedom has led teachers to sacrificially serve in difficult schools or just serve difficult students. Such freedom led a CEO of a major company who could be making millions to sacrificially serve his employees by capping his salary well below that. Such freedom has led artists and musicians to sacrificially serve the world by creating art that conveys truth art that conveys beauty instead of phoning in art that sells. Such freedom has empowered men and women to sacrificially serve difficult co-workers or neighbors 
Such freedom is sustained in empowered parents as they sacrificially love their child headed down a destructive path. I know it did for my parents. Such freedom has led many to sacrificially serve by giving up on their dreams and working jobs that they don't like so they can provide for their family, so they can care for a loved one. Such freedom has led countless retirees to see their retirement as an opportunity to sacrificially serve the next generation and not just an opportunity for vacation. Such freedom has led many of you to sacrificially serve this church with little to no recognition and definitely no pay. You realize that, right? Some of you do work at this church that other churches pay people to do. And you have other jobs and you do it freely. It's absolutely amazing and it's absolutely insane. I don't know why you do it, actually. Sacrificial, sustained service to the world. And all these vocations, Pam alluded to this and Victor did as well in the video. Such sustained, sacrificial service and all these vocations lays a firm foundation for the church to tell of the wonders of the way that God has freely, sacrificially served humanity in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I mean, y'all, we are in the large buckle of the Bible belt, right? We, we feel, if you're, if you're like me, you feel like the culture is so inundated and immersed with the gospel that for you to speak is to be one of those Christians right? And I confess that this is anecdotal, but time and time again, sustained sacrificial service in, in work and in relationships has led to conversations, deep conversations about meaning and purpose in life. It has led to conversations about Jesus. It's happened for me even when I didn't want to have it happen. Sustained, sacrificial service. In these conversations, the Spirit empowers us to speak in wisdom and discernment in our faith. And God works, God brings about life in situations that we would say, no way. No way with this person. No way. He does. He brings it about. So I'll just close with this. C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien were often made fun of in the Academy for their fiction work, which is funny to think about now. But they were often made fun of in the Academy for their fiction work. Uh, nonetheless, they believed that fantasy literature could illuminate deep truths about the world and our human condition in a way that no other disciplines could. So Shades, my prayer for us as a community is that our faithful, ordinary, daily work would function like fantasy novels. May it reveal the deep truths of this world. May our sacrificial, self-giving, otherworldly love and service reveal to the world the deep, beautiful truth that Jesus Christ is the Lord of the world and that he has served them in a way that is greater than they could ever imagine. You may feel like your daily work is meaningless, worthless, fruitless. You're in good company. But in faith, hear that in our various vocations, we are the masks of God, freed in Christ to bear witness to him 
through loving service to the world. May God the Father and the Son, through the Holy Spirit, empower us to see it and live it for his glory and our good. Amen.